are listening to the Sustainable Transitions podcast, a podcast series where we explore our transition to a low-carbon society, the communities that lead the way and the people who support them. I am your host, Daphne Lynn Becker. So today we're going to try something just a little bit different. I recently had my PhD defense and because I was spending so much time preparing for that and I got so behind in my other work, I didn't have time to set up and record an interview with the guest. So instead, I'm going to talk about one of my areas of research, which is disasters and transitions. And this was actually my very first paper that I had written. I was proud of myself that I finished and I had finally published a paper and you're always happy when your paper is accepted into a journal but nothing is quite like the very first paper I don't think. So what first drew me to studying climate change and disasters? Well before I started working at the Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research I was working a lot with the American Red Cross and obviously the American Red Cross deals with disasters issues mostly. They deal with other things as well but the work I was involved in was involving governments and communities organizations and so when I came to the Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research to start my PhD the natural thing would be to combine somehow disasters and climate change into a paper and my co-author on this paper had the idea of combining disasters with multi-level perspective and the multi-level perspective is a theory used for studying transition and so that's sort of how I got started in that so basically I was the expert in disaster and he was more the expert in in this theory. And so what were the main goals of my research? The aim was to sort of figure out what a transition after a disaster would look like. So there had been some literature which said what really makes transitions occur quickly is a big shock to how we do our normal day-to-day life. And so what gives you a bigger shock than a massive disaster and so to how I conducted my analysis what we did I used process tracing which is a way of tracing causation from a disaster all the way through the end effect which should be a transition and I took the literature on the multi-level perspective and I also took the literature on disasters and I said okay where are the commonalities if this theoretical post-disaster transition were to occur what would it look like and what was amazing just looking at this literature was how many different aspects disaster literature and transition literature had in common so they both talk about small community organizations they both talk about larger organizations sort of continuing to respond continuing to do things as they always did and um, they both have shocks to the system obviously you have the disaster on one hand and transition it could be something else as well so in the end after looking at that i said wow look at all the stuff they have in common and then i came up with my conceptualization of how a post-disaster transition should look and so what i did was i looked at transitions to lower vulnerability after disasters so one of the most interesting thing about disasters is since about 2000 after the Asian tsunami, people wanted to do the thing called build back better. And that basically means after the disaster, you want to move the houses that were once in the floodplain out of the floodplain. You're rebuilding that house 
for that family, the place where they're less vulnerable to the disaster in the future. Fairly simple idea. That really became a bit of a rallying cry for quite some time, and it actually developed so it was no longer just about physical infrastructure, it was also about social things. So for example, people who are able to read are better able to respond post-disaster, they're able to get different notifications, they're able to fill out different forms. Another example could be women's rights. If you were able to give women more rights after a disaster, they're better able to respond. I think there is some literature that says that, okay, women who do not have rights are more likely to die after a disaster. This is something you want to improve so that they are less vulnerable. And why you would do this after a disaster specifically? Well, I mean, you could do it any time. It's just, we don't. It's sort of the sad thing about people is that we wait for some emergency to happen and then we try to fix it. So yes, at any time we could move houses out of floodplains, we could improve women's rights, we could teach children to read. But after a disaster, all of our focus is concentrated on this. And this is when you have momentum to try to fix these problems. And so that's when you can best see a post-disaster transition to lower vulnerability. So what would such a disaster look like? First, you have your pre-disaster vulnerability of the community. And this could be for a variety of reasons, whether the community lives in a floodplain because land outside of the floodplain is too expensive or low literacy rates, or maybe it's a war-torn community. And that vulnerability meets with the environmental hazard, the flood, the earthquake, the cyclone, whatever it is. And those two things together is what creates a disaster. So what's important is to understand that disasters, even if we call them natural disasters, there is no such thing. All disasters are very much related to how people are vulnerable to these environmental hazards. And so you have your disaster event. Now, the disaster event leads to two different processes. First, you have your regime, and your regime is your day-to-day norms and processes. And these norms and processes break down. They're no longer, for example, if it's a big disaster, you're unable to ship in, say, fresh fruit anymore. You can't ship it into the community. Or maybe your electricity is down. You can't do your day-to-day things if you've just gone through a major disaster. It can become very difficult. You can't go to work, or it makes it very difficult to go to work. Your house could be destroyed, and maybe you have to get a top for your roof, whatever it is. Things have been disrupted. Now, your regime actors, which are typically your government or your larger organizations, they want to return back to your day-to-day normal processes. So what do they do? They respond to the disaster. They bring in food. They ship it in. They hand out disaster supplies. They hand out tarps. They maybe give out disaster aid. I mean... You could give money to people, you could put them in shelters, with all with the aim of returning as quickly as possible back to your normal day-to-day activities. Now, at the same time that these regime actors are trying to do this, you have a response on the local level. The average person after a disaster tries to help one another. So you might, if you see that your neighbour is trapped under a log, you rush over to help them as best you can, that kind of thing. And what can happen very easily? after disaster is you get these people banding together to try to solve various problems immediately in the community. They are there, they are living the disaster and they are also responding to it. In responding to the disaster they often come up with innovative ideas and solutions. So you could 
for example set up a facebook web page that had a detailed list of supplies coming in or something alternatively you could start a community group where people went around literally house to house looking to see if anybody needed medical assistance now what happens with this is people say okay this is this is great i mean not all these groups will persist but some of them will some people will say look this is what we need every time we have this disaster in our community and they will form a proper group a lot of the time they're always of course they will try to contact your local disaster response so maybe they'll try to contact your local government let's say who's who's the official response to disaster and say we're going door to door trying to check to see if anybody needs medical assistance can we team up so that you are also not going to the exact same houses after us so that we're not doubling our work we're getting through it faster for example and so sometimes the government will accept this and sometimes they won't so if the government it's not always the government again it could be that they contact the american red cross and say oh we're handing out food in such and such a town maybe with your limited resources you should hand food over here or maybe they say look we want to hand out food but we just we really need a truck to do it and they'll go to let's say the salvation army for example to them and say look we have everything except for a van do you have something you can give us and they the salvation army could say yes or they could say no i mean it depends on the various abilities of the organizations the larger organizations to do so sometimes they're limited by wanting to make sure that the people who they are working with follow certain safety procedures. It could also be that they simply just don't have the resources at that time, but other times they will be able to help. And so if those larger organizations are able to incorporate the small little immediate responses, what can happen is those local small responses often get the resources and support they need to sort of become incorporated into the larger organization. Now, this could happen a number of ways. So it could be that that small group officially forms its own organization and maybe they just cooperate with, for example, the Salvation Army in the future. It could be that the Salvation Army says, this is a fantastic plan. We're going to always have this food handout track as part of our own disaster response and i know the salvation army already does that it's just an example or for example you could have if the larger organizations or government are unable or unwilling to work with these local ones those small organizations can die out the example the food truck they're not getting the resources they need to be able to continue they're not getting the perceived legitimacy not getting in touch with the larger organizations for various support um alternatively they could say something like look the larger organizations do not care about my specific community they do their thing but they don't care about us and then they have a negative response on most of them so it's a very interesting dynamic but for the transition to happen the smaller organization needs that support so if the organization gets the support it can become part of the regime and what's amazing about that is it changes the day-to-day rules and processes so for example it could be that in the future the salvation army always cooperating with this smaller organization and that smaller organization starts to branch out into other things so what can happen is that this new innovation this new small community group possessed can spread and become part of the day-to-day regime it becomes part of those organizations it becomes part of the process and a little while after the disaster this new regime stabilizes things are no longer 
changing at its fastest pace. The initial parts of the disaster are over, the response is over, and it becomes the new normal again. Whether that means your electricity is back on, the houses are rebuilt, whatever that might be, whatever it is, it's the new normal. And so because you've had this new innovation that came from this small group, if this innovation reduces the vulnerability to future disasters, essentially you've reduced the vulnerability of that community to future disasters. Like an example of how this would work could be the small organization hands out food, it becomes part of the day-to-day practices in disaster organizations, and now the community next time there is a disaster has already set up as the infrastructure, the system that the food will be handed out immediately after a disaster. The community is now less vulnerable. And so that's how a, uh, a transition would look like. And so in this study, I decided to focus on two case studies. I chose to study Hurricane Katrina and Cyclone Nargis for several reasons. The first is that they, they meet the definition of a disaster. So a disaster event needs to be substantial enough that it sort of overwhelms the immediate community. It disrupts that day-to-day norms that we discussed earlier. So for example, a house fire wouldn't meet this definition. A house fire, usually your community can handle fairly well itself. But if, for example, a gigantic forest fire sweeps through the community and your local disaster responders are overwhelmed and your infrastructure is damaged, you often need help from the state, the provincial, or the national government. So that is the first thing. And so both Cyclone Argus and Hurricane Katrina meet that. The second thing is the disaster should have the appearance of being natural. So there is no such thing as a truly natural disaster. I think I already mentioned that. But what I'm interested in is exploring disasters within the context of climate change. And so I'm looking for disasters that are likely to become worse as a result of climate change or become stronger. Another thing is the disaster must be sudden onset. The reason why is because the bigger the shock, the more likely it is to disrupt your day-to-day activities. If it's a slow-moving disaster, such as a drought, for example, people have more time to respond. There isn't that change everything all of a sudden. And the last requirement for the case studies was I was looking for disasters that occurred after 2005 because that when we started to see this concept of build back better. So before that many people were still living out that idea of building back better after disasters. It wasn't quite the global concept that it became. And so I really wanted disasters which would take those kind of responses into account. I was also looking for disasters that weren't too young because I wanted to see the transition occur. So if I took a, so a disaster event that had occurred, say, one year prior to my study, I could say, oh, look, this transition is ongoing, but I certainly couldn't see the full thing. And I couldn't argue that, oh, yes, the whole transition has happened yet because disasters take a while to respond to. And so what did these transitions look like? Well, let me give one example. So out of the two examples, case studies, really, that I chose, Cyclone Nargis was successful in having a full transition whereas Hurricane Katrina was not. So I will give the example of Cyclone Nargis. So firstly, Myanmar, at the time that Cyclone Nargis hit, which was between the 2nd and the 3rd of May 2008, 
1908 was very vulnerable to disasters. So there was a high level of poverty and poor health and the delta lies at sea level and is very densely populated. The government of Myanmar at this point was internationally isolated and the civil society was largely non-existent because of the civil wars and divisions among different ethnic groups in the country. So when Cyclone Nargis hit, there were winds of 190 to 240 kilometers per hour, depending on which source you're looking at. And the storm surge went to about 40 kilometers inland, which is so crazy when you think about it. And because of these pre-disaster vulnerabilities, many international organizations lacked the staff within the country, as well as the infrastructure, to do a staff surge after the disaster. And very few international organizations were able to respond early within a disaster event. So Cyclone Nargis affected between 1.5 to 2.4 million people and killed an estimated 130,000 to 140,000 people again depending upon which source you are looking at. The disaster caused widespread damages in the communities including the infrastructure, the fishing which many people relied upon for income, the fishing fleet, agricultural land was damaged when the salt water came in, livestock were killed in a storm surge and many homes were ruined. And after the disaster, after the, the cyclone had left, the community was basically had a lot to handle and the, your day-to-day -day norms very much broke down. So you had food shortages, a lack of clean water, a loss of health services and education, a lot of people lost their livelihoods, one million people became homeless and insufficient food and water remained for more than a year after the cyclone hit. So think about that, for a year after the disaster there was not enough food and water in these communities and the difficulty in obtaining credit remained for at least two years after the cyclone. You may wonder what the credit's used for and if you want to rebuild your home or if you want to buy new livestock or maybe new seeds for your soil and you've just had all your stuff ruined you might need to very well take out credit and that was not possible at this time so it was very hard for people to rebuild themselves so what did the people in these communities do in the immediate aftermath of the disaster well these villagers these people living near the delta they did not just allow the disaster to happen to them they really did what they could and without international aid organizations obviously it's very difficult to get for example large food shipments in but the villagers did work together to overcome some of their immediate post-disaster needs and the private sectors actually and individuals initially provided the majority of the food aid and because of this that we had disaster related innovation so because local organizations were faster at delivering aid the local resource center was a established to link local organizations with international aid and expertise in order to support the local groups and communities. So they were able to get the food and aid into the communities by using these local networks. Now of course during this time the regime actors, the government, the international organizations still desired for stability within the region and return to your normal day to day. But the government of Myanmar because of its international isolation had a great deal of difficulty doing this on its own and initially it refused international aid help because it was very suspicious of international organizations. However, eventually the 
international community was able to somewhat threaten Myanmar into accepting international aid. So that's a, that's a whole different story. <laughs> but the condition that the government of Myanmar put upon this was that any international organizations would have to work with the local organizations in order to be able to work in the country. Now, this was obviously a constraint upon the international organizations, but it did actually have benefits because what it did, it was it provided those local community organizations a great deal of support as well as money and different resources that they would never have been able to have otherwise. This contact between these local organizations and international organizations began to flourish with new networks beginning to form, which was really fantastic. This was a very isolated country before that. And eventually, what happened, which I think is very interesting, is that some of these partnerships between international organizations and local groups began to expand beyond the initial disaster response activities to address other civil society issues and vulnerability issues. They also led to a lot of shared infrastructure projects that led to an increase in inter-village social capital. All of these things are stuff that directly influences the vulnerability to new disasters. So at five years after the disaster, things finally began to return to normal for Myanmar. And because of the way that these small community groups and international organizations work together, we saw an increase in social capital, government reforms, and the greater connection between international organizations and local organizations. Now this reduces the vulnerability to future disasters because these are exactly the kinds of things that how people respond after disasters and will make it easier next time there is a disaster in Myanmar for international organizations to provide aid. They can call up whoever they talked to in the last disaster and say, hey, we worked together on this, now we can work together to respond to this one. Or for example, social capital, people will be better able to respond using their local network. So what kind of factors can make a transition more successful? So in examining my two case studies, what I saw were there were two barriers to to a successful transition. Firstly, there was a lack of capacity. And so in both of the case studies, Cyclone Argus and Hurricane Katrina, uh, the government did not really have the capacity to deal with the disaster. It was such a large disaster. For Cyclone Argus, we're talking about its very isolated government not having the money and resources it needed. And Hurricane Katrina, even though the US is a much wealthier country, FEMA, which is the agency within the federal government responsible for responding to disasters had experienced a lot of cut before the disaster so it also hindered their ability to respond. And the second big barrier that prevented the transitions from being as successful as they might have otherwise have been was the desire for control. So in Nargis this has a happy ending in a way because firstly the, the government of Myanmar had refused all international organisations and had they gotten their way, if they were able to keep that control, maintain that control, international aid would not have been able to get into the country and it would have been much harder for the people affected by the disaster and the communities affected by the disaster to recover. However, they were forced by the international community. So it worked out in that case if the international community had not had the ability to threaten Myanmar into allowing the international organisations in 
things could have gone very poorly. And with Hurricane Katrina, the government agencies responsible for the disaster wanted to maintain control. And they wanted to maintain control over both the response and the recovery from the disaster. And they excluded community groups and those who had responded to the disaster initially. I'm sure there were a few things, but they were largely kept out of the process. And this led to a lot of animosity between the community groups and the government with certain communities feeling like they were discriminated against, their voices were not heard in the response. So this is the second big problem that can cause barriers to a successful transition. Okay, so why is is it important to understand the relationship between disasters and transitions? Well, I think what we need to understand is that with climate change, a lot of different disasters are going to become stronger, perhaps more prevalent. Some will be slow moving, no doubt. There will be some that are more like drought, but there will be lots of them that are also fast. Flooding, hurricanes, cyclones, that kind of thing. We will be seeing more disasters and we need to take that opportunity to lessen people's vulnerability to disasters. That is our opportunity to do so. Again, we should definitely do it before, but somehow with human nature, we never do anything until it's a crisis. And so we need to look at all these disasters that are happening. For example, this summer we have a massive heat wave. Everybody's attention is focused on that heat wave. This is our time to do something about it before the next heat wave hits. We can save lives by maybe, for example, setting up bases for elderly to go and cool off when it's hot or many other things. So we need to be aware of this as climate change is ongoing and we need to be concerned again more heat waves more disasters if we do not reduce our vulnerability things will get worse and so what can we as the public do to address these issues well obviously ideally again we would be able to get people to focus on reducing our vulnerabilities to disasters before they hit however after the disaster hits help your neighbors Band together, do what you can. Insist local government includes you in your planning. Call them, tell them, look, we're serving this neighborhood, we need help. Ideally, we can insist ahead of time that governments are prepared to include these kind of voluntary groups. So there are things such as COADs and VOADs, which is community organizations active in disaster and voluntary organizations active in disaster. And they're basically associations where people come together with various voluntary or community organizations and they say look it's not a normal thing to do but after a disaster we're willing to pitch in so for example it could be for example an organization that deals with people with hearing problems they could say look we normally our job day to day is to go out and help people with hearing problems we're signed up for this co-ed so that after a disaster we are prepared to come to shelters and offer sign language assistance so that people who do have hearing disabilities who end up in shelters have somebody to communicate with if that needs to happen happen. What those organizations can also do is really focus on how to incorporate new organizations if they pop up after the disaster. So some maybe already have those structures in place. And so I think that is a very important thing because we want to have those new innovations pop up. We need to see new ideas for how to respond. And I think that would be one potential avenue for looking after those organizations. And what kind of policies would really help? Well, what's really important in terms of policy is that governments pair ahead of time to include these local organizations. So if they do not have a koan or voan in their community, perhaps encourage one to be set up or alternatively develop 
a plan yourself so that after the disaster, you can deal with these pop-up organizations. What do they need to do for you to involve them in your disaster plan? And if you set it up beforehand, it will be much, much easier to incorporate them after the disaster. It's obviously difficult because it's hard to know after a disaster who is the most responsible. You're very busy, under a lot of stress, but in the long run, it will pay off. And it is very important for local governments, or state governments, etc., federal governments, to be very open to new ideas and new ways of doing things because often what happens with a disaster is your national branch comes in and takes over if it's a big disaster and the thing is it's your local community that knows best what is important for that community they know best what their problems are obviously they need your help and support but to work in those community groups will make the community feel so much more influence and so much more involvement in especially the recovery phase of the disaster response phase might be difficult but the recovery phase definitely essential to get those groups involved those are my recommendations so thank you all so much for listening if you like this format or you want to suggest someone to come on the podcast or want to comment in general you can email me at sustainable transitions at gmail.com and there is also a contact button on the website which is sustainable transitions so next time i will try to get another interview in place so it's not just me talking if you're looking to hear some interviews you can always check out the past interviews which are up on the website and the sustainable transitions podcast is also available on castbox stitcher and blueberry and thank you very much for listening Thank you.